knowing what you believe and why you believe it lies at the very heart of Christian experience, worship, and everyday living. The Bible's not about you. You're not David. Trouble in life is not Goliath. Jesus is going to be David in the shadow. Goliath is going to be sin and death. Who's that make you? Uh, and it doesn't make you the Israelites in the corner going, he's going to kill all of us. That's exactly who you are. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I, with body and soul, life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Gospel is that God the Son freely agreed to die our death for us, to suffer our deserved condemnation and doom in our place. And he didn't just agree from eternity to do it, he actually did it. It is fatal, fatal for us to think that we can ever move on from the gospel. The great problem in the evangelical church today where the scripture is concerned is not the inerrancy of the Bible. The great problem in the evangelical church today is the sufficiency of scripture. We don't think it's sufficient to do what we have to do. So we have to wake up to what's happening and recognize that the problem really is our lack of theology. Hi, and welcome to Theology Gals. I am Colleen Sharp, and my co-host is Ashley Glassick. And we're really excited about today's episode. I think it's something that a lot of people have questions about. We had had Ryan Haskins on kind of towards the beginning. I can't remember what episode that it that was, but to talk about Christ and culture, and really talked a lot about the practical, how that plays out, and if you haven't listened to that episode, I, I highly recommend it. And Ryan is from the podcast Theocast, if you're not familiar with him. And today we're going to have David Van Drunen on to talk about two kingdoms. And Ashley, why do you think this is like such a topic of interest for so many? Well, I think, I think how we interact with culture is really important. And I also think culture is just an interesting topic to people. Uh, so, you know, if there's differing views on it, people people want to talk about it. Like I, I've mentioned before, this is all pretty new to me, so I don't I don't know a ton. Uh, I know when Ryan was on, we joked about burning all of our music in a bonfire, all of our secular right. music in a bonfire. Um, so I think I think some listeners have probably seen some pretty extreme approaches to culture like that, you know, get rid of all your secular music or, you know, the other side where you're super involved in culture. Um, and I, you know, I I like, you know, hearing from people like David Van Drunen who've really studied it biblically because uh, there's so many opinions out there. Right. And as you know, I've been reading his book, Living in God's Two Kingdoms, and really just very, it's an excellent book. I highly recommend it. And he has another one, but I think this is, this is the one that, that I would recommend. And there is different views. And I know even among our audience, you know, we've got some neo-Calvinists that believe more 
in a one kingdom. And in our interview with David, as he even says, that's kind of the default position for a lot of kind of American Christians today is more of a one kingdom view. Um, but there's a lot of people historically on the reform side who held to the two kingdom view, both reformed and Lutheran, although there's mm -hmm. some, there's some differences. And I think too, there's some extremes out there. You, mm -hmm. Like we talked about with Ryan, you know, you got the Amish, you know, you go right. and just live in your own little communities with other believers mm -hmm. or why not go live in a monastery or, you know, something like that. You know, do we engage with the culture and how do we engage with the culture? What is our job as we right. engage with the culture? Right. And it, you know, there's some churches out there that it almost seems like their whole purpose is engaging with the culture. And so that, that I think all of us can look at that and say, okay, they've gone a little too far, you know? And so it, it's finding that balance. Like what, you know, where, right. where should, what is the church supposed to be doing? What are we as lay people supposed to be doing? I think these are really good questions and I'm glad we're asking them. And I think the other extreme would kind of be thinking that our Christianity shouldn't affect how we engage with culture in any way at all. Hmm. So I think that would be the other side of the extreme. We know that that also is not accurate. And so I'm, I'm glad we're talking about this. We get a lot of questions about this. I know that some, not all of you are going to agree with, agree with us or agree with David. I know that you know, there, there are people who strongly disagree. I was on Facebook just today and mentioned that we were having David on and someone said something. <laughs> Gotten a couple comments when I mentioned we were having David on, but I, I'm really, I'm really grateful for his book and that he was willing to come on our show. And, you know, I had, there was a conversation on Twitter. I wanted to mention it since it was kind of, you and I talked to him after the interview off air and and I said, oh, yeah, some people on Twitter were saying, you know, you should come on Twitter. And I think he said something like they shouldn't hold their breath. Yeah. <laughs> it, so? I think there, I think at one point in time there was like a GoFundMe to get Carl Truman on Twitter. <laughs> like, I think I don't know what it was. I think it was a GoFundMe. Um, and I think Carl Truman had a similar stance. He's like, yeah, not not going to happen. Not going to be on Twitter. So. Yeah, don't hold your breath for right. David Brunin or or Carl Truman to be on Twitter. But you get to hear him here on Theology Gals, so I'm very excited about that. So I looked it up. Yeah. Uh, I looked it up, and it was episode 13. So okay, if, episode 13. If you did not, if you're interested in this topic, you did not hear our episode with Ryan Haskins, which was just excellent. I mean, really enjoyed having Ryan on. Go back and listen to Ryan Haskins on Theology Gals on Christ and Culture. And also check out Theocast. They did, I think, a couple, two episodes on Christ and Culture. That's why we had asked him to come on because we enjoyed those so much. Mm -hmm. So I think we'll go to our interview with David and then we will come right back. This podcast is a member of the Bible Thumping Wingnut Network. All right, welcome everybody to another podcast episode with Semper Reformanda Radio. Hi, welcome to Theology Gals. Welcome everyone to the Logical Belief Ministries podcast. Well, welcome to the School of Biblical Hermeneutics. Welcome everybody to Grappling with Theology. What is going on, guys? Shine as lights coming at you. Well, welcome to Slick Answers. Good evening, and welcome to the Conversations 
from the port. On Hello and welcome to Living in the Vine. This is the Council of Google Plus. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Bible Thumping Wingnut Podcast. The Bible Thumping Wingnut Network. 12 podcasts, one network. Check them out at BibleThumpingWingnut.com. And we are back with our guest, Dr. David Van Drunen. And I think a lot of our audience is familiar with you, Dr. Van Drunen. But for those who aren't, can you share a little bit about yourself and your background? Sure. Uh, I am a professor now at Westminster Seminary, California. I teach systematic theology and Christian ethics. I've been teaching at Westminster since 2001. So I'm, as we're speaking, we're in our first week of class starting my 17th year. Uh, I'm a minister in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. I was ordained in 1999 and served uh, for a couple of years at a OPC Church in the Chicago area, uh, Grace a Church in Hanover Park. I know that church. We we went to Bethel in oh, yeah. Eaton. Yes, well, I know many people well and even related to some people at the, uh, Bethel and Wheaton. Yeah, so I was, uh, I'm, I'm, I was, I'm, I guess I'm sort of doing this in reverse chronological order, but I was, uh, I was born and raised in the Chicago area and uh, I, Received a Master of Divinity degree from Westminster Seminary, California, where I now teach, and I have a law degree from Northwestern University, and did a PhD in ethics at Loyola University, Chicago. So that's uh, that's my academic background, and had some pastoral work, and uh, now since 2001, then I've been teaching at the seminary. Well, I guess just to kind of get started, because we're going to be talking to you about about two kingdoms, and just for our listeners, I'm going to be linking the books that he has written about Two Kingdoms in our episode resources, So, because I'm sure a lot of our listeners will be interested. So what when we say Two Kingdoms, what are we talking about? The idea of the Two Kingdoms, well, I should say the, the terminology of the Two Kingdoms goes back to the early days of the Reformation. I think some of the ideas were present before then, but uh, reformers such as Martin Luther and John Calvin used the language of uh, the two kingdoms. And I think it's uh, I think it's important to say that there have been varieties of two kingdoms doctrines. And so uh, just because someone uses that language doesn't mean that they're talking about exactly the same thing as everyone else who uses the terminology. Uh, I, I like to, to uh, use the term in a way that's pretty common for the Reformed tradition. And here's how I would summarize the idea, is that there is, there is of course, one God, and he is the Lord of all. He's the king of, of the whole universe. But God has two distinct ways of exercising that universal rule. Uh, one way he exercises his rule is as the creator and sustainer of all things. And I like to refer to this as uh, God's common rule or uh, the, his, rule, his rule over the common kingdom. Uh, through this rule, God sustains all things. Uh, he upholds the natural order. He upholds human society. Uh, he has ordained uh, many institutions uh, in human society in order to uh, promote some measure of peace and order and justice uh, in this world. But in addition to that common rule, this universal rule of God, 
God also has a redemptive rule. Uh, he has uh, acted in history to save a people for himself. Uh, he has gathered uh, a, a people uh, now uh, uh, under the new covenant. He has gathered his church. And uh, through this redemptive rule, uh, he justifies us, sanctifies us. Uh, he builds us up uh, unto everlasting life. And I would say that this, when we're speaking about God's redemptive kingdom, which is the terminology that I like to use uh, for this rule of God, uh, we're ultimately talking about the new creation. Uh, the new heavens and new earth is ultimately God's redemptive kingdom. Uh, but we have a foretaste of that kingdom, uh, a, uh, a share in the power and the life and the ministry of that kingdom, even now uh, as we are members of Christ's church. So that means that uh, we as Christians are citizens of both kingdoms. We participate in God's common rule along with, along with all of our unbelieving neighbors. Uh, we uh, enjoy the good things of this world. We also suffer under the curse that lies uh, upon this world in common with all other people. We have responsibilities uh, in the various institutions of this world. We participate in the worlds of commerce and of law and politics. Uh, but we also are citizens, most importantly, and uh, most precious to us is our citizenship in Christ's redemptive kingdom. Our, we are citizens of heaven. Uh, we're united with Christ as he is seated at God's right hand. So I think it's important to, for us to understand as we talk about the two kingdoms that we as Christians are, are we participate in both kingdoms. We, both, we have a kind of dual citizenship. And we realize that both of these kingdoms are God's kingdoms. Uh, neither kingdom is morally neutral. I think that's, a, that's an important point to emphasize because one of the caricatures of the two kingdoms is that it makes sort of one realm of life under God's control, and then there's another realm of life that isn't under God's control, that isn't necessarily under his moral uh, jurisdiction. But that's not what the two kingdoms has historically met. God is the king of both kingdoms. We're responsible to God. All people are accountable to God in whatever way they are under his lordship. And um, uh, we don't want to fall into the trap of thinking of one kingdom as, as neutral or autonomous. That's just not the case. Hmm. Um, I was talking to a, a friend this week about, about this, and I, I know very little. I'm, I'm <laughs> letting, letting our listeners know this is like a brand new thing to me. I think I only heard the term two kingdoms maybe a year ago, and I haven't studied it a lot. And I was talking to a friend of mine who is in the same boat as me, and I thought he asked a really good question when we were talking about this. He's like, why is it important that this, like, why is it, why do you think Christians should study this? Like, why is it important to know about this? Sure. Well, I would say that it, uh, it, it helps us to make some important distinctions in our understanding of this world and of our moral responsibilities in this world. Uh, just to back up a step, I, I think we would hopefully all agree that very important for doing theology well is making good distinctions. We would say we need to, we need to know how to distinguish justification and sanctification in order to understand the doctrine of salvation. We need to under, we need to distinguish, uh, person and nature in order to understand who the Lord Jesus Christ is. And I would say something is similar here. In order to understand uh, 
uh, how God exercises his rule over this world and what our moral responsibilities are in the various aspects of human life, it's important uh, to make this distinction. Hmm. And uh, I mean, there are, I think there are so many implications, it's hard to know even where to begin uh, to answer that question. But uh, one thing that is, I think is really important is uh, for our ecclesiology, our, our, our doctrine of the church. What, what do we think the church is supposed to be doing? Uh, hmm. What does the church exist for? Uh, is the church, uh, does it exist to focus upon the ministry of the word of God, uh, the sacraments, discipline, the fellowship of God's people? Uh, is the mission of the church to gather people unto everlasting life? And, uh, or, is the, or, or does the church have uh, some other broader mission? Is the church to be... Uh, an instrument for social justice in this world? Uh, is it meant to be uh, a place where uh, uh, we form political action committees? Uh, is the church responsible for solving all of the world's problems of economics and law and politics? I, I, I think that's my, my, you might, I think you probably already suspect my answer is no, that that's not the work of the church. God has it's not as if those things aren't important. It's not as if we as Christians don't want to be involved in these various other issues of this world. We should be concerned uh, about commerce and law and politics and art and sciences. But I think it's important for us to know in what way are we to be involved. Um, and so I would say that that's one very important uh, issue that perhaps you want to uh, explore more uh, later. But here's another big picture uh, uh, answer that I would have to, uh, to your question. Uh, as we, uh, as Christians, are involved in our broader vocations uh, in this world, um, I, th I think there are there are two extreme views that Christian that many Christians have. There, there, there are some Christians uh, who, who are very suspicious about Christians being involved in various institutions in this world and taking up all sorts of what might, we might call a secular common vocations. Uh, seeing that as uh, kind of compromising something that we may do just out of necessity. You know, we need to feed our families so we go get a job to make some income. Uh, on the other hand, I think there are there are m many Christians who think about their participation in the institutions of this world and their common vocations as ways that they are going to bring in the kingdom, uh, as ways that they are as part of a calling uh, as a calling to redeem all areas of life. And I would say that both of those. Uh, extremes are mistakes and that the two kingdoms idea allows us to say you know it's really important for us as Christians to be involved in this world in all sorts of vocations in all sorts of institutions uh, we can work alongside unbelievers uh, in doing these things and yet not fall into the trap of thinking that if we're not bringing in the kingdom if we're not redeeming all things we're somehow failing in these responsibilities um, I, I think it offers, as I would see it, a kind of a 
middle way that allows us, on the one hand, both to affirm that we are, we're sojourners and aliens in this world. Uh, and at the same time, we have really important responsibilities in this world that we can't uh, ignore. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, I was just thinking about my job, you know, I'm a teacher. Um, it sounds like you're saying some people might say, well, you're a teacher, so you should be teaching at a Christian school because like that's like kind of a view some people might have, or you should be using your job to further the kingdom at, in the public sphere. And you're saying it's more in the middle of, I can just be a teacher in the public sphere and just do that job well. Is that kind of what you're getting at? Yes, and of course we'd want to talk about all sorts of details and nuances. Uh, yeah, yeah, I would say uh, if you are, you're, you're, you're obviously teaching at a public school. That's, mm -hmm. that's right, yeah. And, and, and I would say, look, there are, um, what you're doing is making an important contribution uh, to this world, to the way that God uh, upholds our common human society. That we as Christians, uh, we don't think that learning, uh, I, don't, I, I don't know what you teach, uh, but you know, math. That, that, <laughs> I teach that learning math <laughs> or chemistry or history or economics, we don't think this is just for Christians. Hmm. That, uh, that these are subjects that, uh, that unbelievers can study as well. Uh, and in fact, we know that unbelievers often have a much better understanding of these things. Sometimes they're better at math than Christians are. That some of the great discoveries of, uh, of uh, human learning uh, are, are done by, by unbelievers. And we can acknowledge that. And we, we as Christians can learn from uh, unbelievers. And we think it's good that unbelieving children study math. Uh, and so uh, without knowing any more details about your background or about the school in which you teach, I would say uh, you can look at, at your job as a public school math teacher as a way for you to contribute to the good of this world. And that when uh, children, whether they're Christians or, or non-Christians, when they learn mathematics, uh, you are... Uh, that is a way in which you are blessing them because it's going to serve their good interests uh, uh, in this world. And it's a way of blessing the broader human society because our human society is going to be better when children are taught mathematics. Uh, and so you can, uh, you don't have to apologize for doing that work. Uh, you don't have to feel as though um, this is somehow unimportant because you're not evangelizing uh, as you're teaching mathematics or because you're not turning your public school into a Christian school. Uh, and, and, and that's not to say that I, you know, I think, uh, I think sending children to, to a Christian school is, uh, I think that can be a very great option for, for Christian parents. I don't think it's the only option uh, that, that, uh, that they have to pursue. Uh, but I hope that makes sense. Is, is that yeah. you are uh, you, you? You can have a very positive view of your work. It's mm. it's good, productive work that blesses your neighbors, your fellow human beings, um, and you don't have to feel what what I would say is a kind of a false, uh, unfair pressure 
that you have to somehow transform your workplace into somehow a little outpost of Christ's kingdom, hmm. uh, Christ's redemptive kingdom, right? You are doing good work under God's common mm -hmm. kingdom. And uh, I think you can be, you can be grateful of, of, for that and not feel, not feel guilty about it. Hmm. Something I didn't even write this one down, but um, something I was thinking about when you were talking is, I know that you said that the reformed two kingdoms is it's different than the Lutheran two kingdoms in some ways, but I hear Lutherans more often talk about the doctrine of vocation. So do we have something similar on the reform side in what you're talking about right here with Ashley? Uh, yes, I think that there is, uh, there's a lot that reformed and Lutherans historically have in common with respect to vocation. Although you're right, I think it, it is, it, it is true that um, there are, uh, a lot of Lutherans who talk about vocation. I think that's very helpful. And I think we, I, I think we who are reformed uh, need to, um, to talk about it too. I mean, whether or not we always use that terminology is, is not all that important. It's really the concept behind it. And I think when, it, you know, some of your listeners may not know exactly what we're even talking about with vocation. Uh, I, I, when I say vocation, uh, I'm using a word that is that, that comes from uh, a Latin term that means uh, called. Uh, to say that someone has a vocation means that someone has a calling. And I think often uh, in the church, we use calling to describe people who, have, uh, who are called to the gospel ministry. And I think that certainly is appropriate. Uh, but, but by saying that we, uh, that, that we have callings in all sorts of areas of life is also really important too. Because it, to say that we, we don't just have a job, but we have a calling, is to say that uh, that God is somehow calling us to this. It doesn't mean that we've heard a, a still small voice in the night telling us, you know, be a math teacher. But it means that 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 God, in a general way, has called Christians to a variety of occupations, and that when we take up occupations that are that are law abiding that bring blessing to other people that bring good to our societies that we can have confidence that we're not just doing it on our own initiative for just in order to get a paycheck uh, but that we're actually serving god uh and since, uh, since you bring up luther i think there's it it, it might be or a you, you brought up Lutherans, and so I'll, I'll bring up Luther. Uh, Luther has this, this, this great statement that uh, it's, it's something to the effect that, you know, God is the one who feeds people. Uh, God is the one who heals people, uh, ultimately. But that ordinarily, God is pleased to use farmers and bakers to feed people. And he's pleased to use doctors and nurses to heal people. And that uh, when we take up ordinary occupations, ordinary vocations, like being a farmer, being a baker, being a nurse, being a physician, uh, that we are actually, we're, we're, we're instruments of God. We're like God's hands uh, by which he, he loves and serves his creation. And, and I think that can be, I think that could be really encouraging for us, uh, especially when we're stuck in kind of in the mundane ruts of everyday life and everyone goes through times feeling like their job is just 
you know, they, uh, it doesn't feel that important or it, uh, they feel like it's just not very rewarding. Um, what is it that gets people out of bed in the morning to, to go to work? And I, I think some Christians going back to, a, to a, a, a something we were talking about a few minutes ago, I think some Christians feel some pressure that if I'm not somehow, I don't know, if I'm not evangelizing on the job or if I'm not Christianizing my workplace, I'm somehow not really, it, it's not really worthwhile for me to go out and, and to do my job. And I think that that kind of perspective that Luther provides or that this larger concept of vocation provides is a way of saying, you know what, I can, it's good for me to get up and, and go to work this morning. I'm actually going to be an instrument of God uh, to bring good in this world. And I think that should be encouraging to us. And since a lot of our listeners are women, and some of them work outside the home like Ashley, and some of them work in the home only, because mm -hmm. Ashley works in the home and outside the home. <laughs> but um, I haven't worked, you know, I haven't gone to a job for almost 22 years. So it, that is, for, for those women, that's their vocation. Right. And you said different yes. kinds of vocations, too. So that doesn't mean, you know, if you're if you're working outside the home and a mom, both of those apply. Right. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think there I, we we definitely don't want to think about vocation simply in terms of do I get a paycheck for doing this? Uh, certainly a lot of that, that will be true for many vocations. Um, and, you know, that's great. I mean, we need to get paychecks. At least someone in the family needs to get a paycheck. Uh, but yes, I think it's 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 uh, for someone like you, who's a stay-at-home mom. I, I you, you didn't use that term, but I assume that's probably the case. Yeah. Yes. And um, uh, that, I mean that's that that is a vocation, and that's uh, that's a noble vocation, and it's I mean talk about a very very important vocation. Um, so yes, I think uh, there are all sorts of unpaid vocations that, for, that, that, that everything we've been talking about fits, right? I mean, that is ultimately it's God who cares for your children. It's ultimately God who raises them. Uh, and yet uh, God ordinarily uses parents uh, to, to do that work. And so when, when stay-at-home parents are doing the most mundane things that can get really old and frustrating sometimes when they're changing diapers and cleaning up spilled milk or, or yuckier things than spilled milk <laughs> that you're actually, you're actually an instrument of God caring for these little ones that have been uh, entrusted to you. Uh, now that doesn't mean just anything can be a vocation. I don't think there's a vocation of sitting in the basement watching reruns <laughs> of TV shows. I mean, that's not a vocation. Uh, but I think there are all sorts of uh, wonderful vocations uh, in which we're serving others, some paid, some unpaid. I, I think that's also true uh, in the church. I mean, I'm, I'm called as a minister of the gospel, and that means that I have responsibilities that are more, uh, that, that, that are often public in terms of leading worship and preaching. Uh, but I think people have vocations in the church as well, even if they're not in that official kind of capacity uh and um so you know those who are, are ordained as ministers may get a paycheck for their vocations in the church but i think there are all sorts of uh, ways in which people can have kind of unofficial uh informal calls uh, in which they're serving the church as well 
So you've already kind of touched on this, but I, I mean, I know there's a lot of different One Kingdom views, but how does, in general, I mean, not just concerning work, how does Two Kingdoms kind of differ from One Kingdom? Yeah, I, I think in the uh, in in the Reformed theological world, or, or at least many parts of the Reformed theological world over the last century or so, uh, we've fallen into a sort of default one kingdom perspective. And uh, one of the primary ways in which that's been expressed is that, you know, there, there would be an emphasis upon the fact that God is the ruler of all. He's the creator of all. Uh, all things fell into sin, so sin has spread and infected all things in this created world. And that God's redemptive work is extending to all created things. And so uh, it is, uh, it's important for us as believers, so this, this, this line of thinking goes, is that in whatever realm of life we find ourselves in, that we are in some ways agents of that redemptive work. Mm -hmm. And so if you're called as, as a teacher, uh, you are called to be bringing God's redemptive uh, work. Uh, you're called to in some way make manifest the, the presence of the kingdom, of Christ's redemptive kingdom in your workplace. Uh, mm -hmm that your teaching of mathematics, I'm, I'm speaking to Ash, uh, Ashley because mm -hmm. I, Ashley's the one appearing on my screen right now, so that's why I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about you. And so, um, um, wherever you find yourself, uh, if, if you're teaching mathematics, uh, somehow that teaching of mathematics needs to point to and reflect the reality of that redemptive kingdom uh, of Christ. Now, you know, there are a lot of complexities here, and my basic uh, critique is to say I, that, that there is a sense, of course, in which we say God's redemptive work applies to all things, uh, to all creation. And I mean, you might think of texts in Ephesians 1 or Colossians 1 that speak in, the, in those universal terms about the reconciliation of all things. But I fear that there's a bit of a... Uh, we might say a kind of a moving ahead of the eschatological calendar. That's maybe not the most user-friendly way to put it. But I, I think ultimately when we hear about the reconciliation of all things, the redemption of all things, Scripture is pointing us to the day of Christ's return. He's pointing us to that new creation, to that new heavens and new earth in which Christ will be all in all, uh, in which there will be no more, there will be no more common kingdom. There's going to be, there are not going to be a fallen, sinful human structures, human institutions. Um, there will be only in all penetrating holiness uh, of, of, of Christ. Uh, but until that day, uh, we, we still remain living uh, in this first creation that is fallen, uh, but it's preserved. And... Maybe this is a point for me to uh, bring in an idea that's that's been very important for me in thinking about the two kingdoms, and that's 
the covenant that God made with Noah uh, after the flood, which is a universal covenant. Uh, it's a universal covenant by which God preserves this world. And he says uh, in that covenant, which we find at the end of Genesis 8, beginning of Genesis 9, uh, that this covenant will endure, uh, or God makes this covenant for as long as the earth endures. And that means we're still under this covenant. Uh, God is still preserving this world for all human beings. Uh, and uh, so it's, it's, it's from that perspective then that I would, I would offer critique of a kind of a one kingdom perspective that I think want, that believes that we're trying to somehow to bring in that holiness to all areas of life, into politics, into law, into business. And I just think that's the wrong way uh, to think about those other institutions and our responsibilities uh, within it. But having said that, I, I would also want to say that the um, I I appreciate uh, the the uh, the concern of a lot of the people who would take a more one kingdom perspective that they do want Christians to be active in in various areas of life and do want to affirm God's sovereignty in all of life and I, I certainly have have a wholehearted agreement with them there that's that that is that's not the point of, of dispute hmm. um maybe we could talk about some other criticisms of of two kingdoms since we're kind of we kind of ended up there that um i've i've heard them um uh, mentioned before i've even studied it you know when it, i feel like it can be a bit controversial um so what are some other criticisms about two kingdoms well, I think that I, I, I think uh, a, a concern among some people uh, is that the two kingdoms leads to a kind of a quietism, uh, and I don't know if you're familiar with that term. It, it's uh, basically that it, it encourages Christians to be passive in the public square, in public life. Uh, Essentially, that it, it it makes the church really important, but it doesn't really it, it 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 makes other areas of life unimportant, and gives Christians an excuse to let the problems of the world go by and let other people deal with them. And one of the uh, one of the pieces of evidence that's sometimes brought out uh, to support that objection is say, uh, well, you know the. The Lutherans had a very strong two kingdoms doctrine, and Germany was a very strong Lutheran country, and it was the doctrine of the two kingdoms that allowed German Christians to basically not to object uh, to the rise of the Nazis. Uh, they could just kind of go along with it. Uh, the two kingdoms gave them some sort of cover uh, for that. Now, I would respond by saying, I if if that was what the two kingdoms meant, then I would join the criticism of it. Uh, but I, th I, I hope listeners can see or can hear, uh, have been able to understand as we've been talking thus far, that really the two kingdoms idea was not ever meant as a way to get Christians out of public affairs or the public square, whatever you, however you want to say it, but was actually, uh, in part, uh, during uh, the Reformation era, was a way to encourage Christians in their common vocations. 
Mm -hmm. uh, in a lot of medieval Christianity, the only vocation that really counted was somehow serving the church. If you were a priest or a monk or a nun, then you had a vocation. Uh, but the two kingdoms idea in the Reformation uh, was a way of saying, no, these, these other vocations really are very meaningful. Uh, uh, and uh, it's something that Christians ought to be uh, a part of and uh, can feel very um, productive and fruitful uh, in, in doing them. So I think it's the sort of, uh, it's a sort of objection that really uh, is, is aimed at more of a caricature than uh, uh, of the two kingdoms than really the two kingdoms doctrine itself. Mm -hmm. We talked a little bit about the differences. Uh, we didn't talk about the differences, but that there are differences between the reformed two kingdom view and the Lutheran. But even within our reformed camps, there are some different views of two kingdom, correct? Um, and what would some of those be? Yeah, I would say that there's a, yeah, I, I would, um, let me talk about this historically for a moment. Uh, I, in the, when, when I said uh, in, when we were talking earlier uh, that I would, uh, I would understand the doctrine and explain the doctrine uh, in reformed terms, uh, that is certainly the case for the broad sketch of the doctrine that that I offered in terms of there being this twofold rule of God. Uh, and uh, one thing that I think is worth mentioning is that in the early reformed tradition, so we're talking here in the 16th, 17th century, uh, these reformed theologians who spoke about the two kingdoms, uh, they also believed that civil government, even though civil government was part of the common kingdom, and they said that very clearly. They also believed that the common kingdom had certain responsibilities to protect the true church and to suppress false churches, uh, to, in some cases, punish heresy and blasphemy. And that kind of makes sense in that context. I mean, basically all, I mean, whether you were a Lutheran or Reformed or Roman Catholic, I mean, almost everyone believed that then even though they had different views about what the true church was. Uh, in my own uh, understanding of the two kingdoms and my attempt to try to explain it biblically, uh, I, I take a view which, of course, is common now in reform circles. It's not unanimous, but it's common uh, in reform circles now that uh, we don't want civil government uh, to be protecting only one church and trying to suppress all other churches and imprisoning or executing heretics and blas uh, blasphemers. And so I have, in, in my work, I have tried to uh, use the two kingdoms doctrine as a way of explaining why religious liberty is a good thing, uh, why uh, we don't want a civil government that's morally neutral, but we do want a civil government that does not uh, choose sides in terms of churches, and we don't want our churches linked with a particular political party or political platform. And so that's that's one way that I would say historically that you can see differences in the way the two kingdoms works out. And I so I would say that that's 
that's more of a difference in the application of the two kingdoms. I think it's a more consistent application to take what we might think of as Americans as a, as a First Amendment, uh, or to, to, to see the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution as consistent with a, with a basic uh, two kingdoms perspective. And I think within, within contemporary reform circles, you can find some differences of, uh, of application and emphasis. Uh, I think there are some differences as to, uh, within those who would uh, appreciate the two kingdoms in terms of, uh, for example, uh, how, uh, what sort of diaconal work should the church do? Uh, is the diaconal work of the church limited to the church itself, to needy believers, or does uh, the diaconal work of the church spread beyond the walls of the church to try to bring relief and help uh, to, uh, to the broader community. I think there are some differences uh, as to uh, just what can the church say with respect to uh, pressing social or political issues of the day. I mean, what, what actually can the church say from the pulpit um, about the things that we, we read about in the newspapers or hear on the news or read on the internet? And uh, I think that there can certainly be some, uh, I, I, I don't know how to put it. I mean, I, I would say that I think within agreement about the basic parameters of a two kingdoms doctrine, there's room for us to have legitimate discussion and debate about what that means for particular issues. I don't think the two kingdoms doctrine itself gives us a thousand specific applications that we're all necessarily going to agree on. It sounded it, like, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I'm just going to, uh, to, to say, I, I think the two, the two Kingdoms Doctrine gives us a kind of a framework. It gives us mm -hmm. a kind of, uh, it, it gives some parameters for thinking about some of these issues, but it's not going to always provide a, a detailed, uh, mm -hmm. a detailed explicit working out of what this means on the ground. Right. I was thinking about, as you were talking about the civil magistrate, uh, Westminster Confession, Chapter 23, which is actually the context in which I heard, first heard about Two Kingdoms, is my my church last summer, we were working through in Sunday school the confession, and we got to 23, and we actually did something really interesting in Sunday school where uh, my pastor showed us the uh, original version of Chapter 23, and then showed us how it changed when you know, the Presbyterians came to the United States um, and why it changed and why we hold that, I guess, kind of a more American view of the civil magistrate and why we see the separation as important and and all that. So that was really helpful for me in understanding what the role of the government is in terms of what, in, at least in terms of what the confession speaks to. Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, that's, that sounds like a good, uh, a good study. It, it um, yeah, as you're saying, the when when the Westminster uh, Confession Catechisms were written in the 1640s, uh, it was it was a predominant reform view that, as as I was saying, that 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 the church should be or that the civil magistrate should be protecting only the true church and suppressing others, and 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 that that is reflected or that was reflected in the original uh, Westminster Confession, and. Uh, when when the American Presbyterians founded, 
really the the American Presbyterian Church when it was organized as a distinct Presbyterian Church. Um, it modified a number of uh, places in uh, the, the confession, and I think it's very helpful what 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 happened. And I think it is a more consistent working out of the two kingdoms idea, and the different purposes that God has for the civil magistrate in comparison with the church. Uh, when we read, say, in Romans 13 about the civil magistrate, it's interesting that uh, Paul doesn't say anything there uh, about, about Christ, about redemption, uh, about the distinctive Christian way of life. And, and, and that's, it's, it's really interesting to compare that with the text right before Romans 13 and the text right after Romans 13, 1 through 7, in which Paul is telling Christians about this wonderfully different distinct life that we live as Christians, as those who have been justified, as those who have this everlasting hope. But when he talks about the civil magistrate, uh, and we have to remember he was talking about, he was talking about the Roman government, which was pagan, which was, which was a lot worse than the American government. We can be quite sure, uh, certain of that. And, uh, you know, he, he says that its work is to bear the sword, to punish the one who does evil, and that by doing so, the magistrate is a, um, a minister of, of, of God. And then you compare that to the church and how the New Testament speaks about the church and its discipline. Uh, God never gives the sword to the church. Uh, the church is to exercise discipline for those who sin. Uh, we know that from, say, 1 Corinthians 5 and Matthew 18. But it's... It's a spiritual discipline that doesn't seek to punish people for their wrong, but to call people to repentance and to reconcile them to the church, restore them to their brothers and sisters whom they've wronged. And how do we see that? How do we, how do we explain those differences? And I would say, well, they, they reflect different kinds of rules of God. Through, through the civil government, we see God's, God's just rule. Uh, we see... Um, that kind of uh, coercive uh, enforcement of uh, civil justice, whereas in the church we see uh, this gracious, forgiving discipline uh, that God has instituted, reflecting his two different rules. And I think that that was, to get back to your original comment, I think that, uh, I, I think the, uh, the Presbyterian uh, church has come to understand that those those implications better. And there's also something that has, uh, you've, you've seen a, a, a similar uh, change in uh, a lot of the continental reformed churches, like the Dutch reformed uh, churches, uh, that changed uh, Article 36 of their Belgic confession uh, along similar lines. And so I think we can be grateful uh, that I think there's been some more consistent thinking among reformed people uh, over the past uh, couple of centuries. Hmm. So I know a big question, of course, you talk a little bit about it in your book too, but on a practical level, you know, how does this, on one side, we see people that, you know, you can get your Christian yellow pages and hire a Christian plumber and, um, and then listen to Christian music, watch Christian movies, that sort of thing. So how does a two kingdom view affect those sorts of things in our lives on a practical level. Yeah, I think it. Uh, I think one thing that it does is 
it allows it, it, it helps to, to give some theological explanation for why unbelievers uh, are able to do many good and productive things in this world. And uh, it, it, it gives us a theological explanation for why uh, if you need a plumber, since you give that example, um, that the best person to, to clean up the mess in your bathroom may not be the Christian who we find in the Christian Yellow Pages. It may be the unbeliever who's just better uh, at his work. Uh, so what is that theological explanation? And that, that they, the explanation is God, through his common grace, preserves this world. He preserves human society, and he, he, he continues to give good gifts to, uh, to human beings, uh, to unbelievers as well as uh, believers. And uh, coming to knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't simply make you a better plumber or a better math teacher. Uh, the math teacher who converts on a Saturday doesn't walk into the classroom on Monday and suddenly has all these abilities to teach math that she didn't have uh, the week before. And I don't think that means that we can't, if, if we want to support the Christian plumber down the street, I think that's great. Go ahead and do that. But it, it, I, I don't think we have obligations to do that, uh, that we uh, can acknowledge the gifts that God has given to unbelievers and we can take advantage of them. Uh, we can use them just as uh, if, if, if a Christian is teaching math, uh, can you learn a good math pedagogy from an unbeliever? Uh, I'm sure you can. I'm sure that they have insights that you may not have if you read uh, a Christian who was uh, writing about math uh, pedagogy. And I think that's true you, if you're talking about books or movies, um, uh, has God given uh, uh, unbelievers great writing abilities and insights into, into life uh, that makes for good literature or good film? And the answer is yes. Do we have to use discernment as we enjoy these things? Well, yeah, we do, but we should be using discernment if we were reading a Christian, you know, a, a book by a Christian <laughs> author, seeing a film by uh, a Christian producer. Uh, so, you know, I think that we, I think that, that we ought to avoid a kind of a, I don't know what to call it, a kind of a narrow parochialism or kind of a Christian ghetto kind of mentality in which we can, you know, we only want to do business with each other. We only want to talk to each other. We only want to learn from each other. Uh, I think that that is a different kind of mindset from what scripture gives us. Not only because of the Noahic covenant in which we find that God has actually ordained a common life for us as human beings, but even if you think of a text like 1 Corinthians 5, in which Paul is very adamant in saying, calling the church to, to exercise discipline uh, for serious sexual sins within the church. And Paul says, you, we, 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 we can't just ignore the demand for holiness in the church. We need to deal with these sins that are, these unrepentant sins that are taking place uh, in the church. But he goes on later in 1 Corinthians 5, and he says, now I've, I've told you, that you should not associate with idolaters and adulterers, et cetera. 
And then he says, but I'm not saying the idolaters and adulterers of this world, because then you'd have to leave the world. And what Paul is presuming there is saying, uh, I don't want you to leave the world. I'm not expecting you to leave the world. Uh, you ought to be living in your broader human communities. Does that mean you're going to be associating with idolaters and adulterers as you do business and as you interact with your neighbors? Uh, the answer is yes, but that's we're not called to to leave the world. And mm-hmm. uh, I think just as we want, we would want unbelievers to hire us if we had a plumbing business. So I don't think that we need to say, well, we can't hire non-Christians if we have a plumbing problem that needs to be handled. When you said leaving the world, I thought of the book that came out last year, The Benedict Option, I believe it was called. and And I think there's kind of, some people find the idea of almost being like, I guess monastic would be the word, just... Um, just let's completely separate ourselves from the world um, to remain kind of pure. I, I I think that's kind of the line of thinking that's become somewhat popular in in some circles. Uh, that that's a good idea. Yeah, and I th- I think it's uh, you know there's there are a lot of valid observations and insights and some wisdom in that book, and uh, I, th- I think that there are some real legitimate concerns about. Uh, about the the opposition uh, of this world to us as Christians, uh, to to us to our churches, to our children, and uh, we don't want to be naive about um, the spiritual warfare that's going on, and uh, we certainly don't want to be uh, careless about how we raise our children uh, and. Uh, try to be on guard against various ways in which worldly thinking can creep into their mind and, of course, creep into our own mind. So uh, I think there's a lot there that's certainly legitimate to consider, but I do have have my differences with some of the overall tenor of uh, uh, of that book and of the kind of ideas that that book represents. You know, I was just, um, I was just preaching last week from Matthew nine and and the call of Matthew. Uh, if you remember that story, Matthew was a tax collector, and tax collectors were hated at that time, and they were viewed as collaborators with the Romans, and they cheated people, charging more taxes than they were legally supposed to. And yet Jesus calls Matthew, and Matthew follows him, and immediately thereafter. Jesus is at this dinner, and it's a dinner full of tax collectors and sinners. And this is shocking to the Pharisees. The Pharisees don't, they don't know what's going on. They ask the disciples, why is your master doing this? And one of the things that I, I put before the congregation toward the end of my sermon is that, you know, as, as much as we do need to be careful about the pollution of this world, protecting ourselves, protecting our children uh, from worldly ways of thinking and worldly ways of conduct. It is interesting that under the new covenant, which we see laid out for us in the Gospel of Matthew, and of course throughout the New Testament, is that uh, we're not just called to be an insular community that just closes our 
our doors to those who are the tax collectors and the sinners. Uh, but we see Jesus, and I think calling the church to actually be, um, to calling in the tax collectors and sinners. And uh, we can't be so focused upon keeping ourselves pure and unpolluted by the world that we forget that we are called to be, be, to, to be in the world and uh, to be calling people to the, uh, the gospel, inviting people into the church. And I'm afraid that we're going to lose some of that, that mindset uh, if we take a kind of neo-monastic view of things. At least I think it's a real danger. Um, another thing that we had a question about is, I think we've already mentioned this, not in name, but we kind of alluded to neo-Calvinism mm -hmm. and how that's really influenced the church in the last, would you say, century or so. Yeah. Um, what are your concerns? or Do you have concerns with that? Yes. And uh, when you asked me to describe the kind of one kingdom view, uh, what I was describing there was basically a neo-Calvinist version uh, of that. So some of the concerns I expressed then would, would be uh, the same for neo-Calvinism. And, you know, I would say that one, one overarching concern that I would have, and, 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 and this would be more true for some neo-Calvinists than, than others. There's, there's, there's always some danger of having too sweeping of a, uh, uh, of a critique. But I, but I do have some concern that in neo-Calvinism's zeal to get Christians to be involved in all sorts of areas uh, of life, that there can be a corresponding diminishment in the importance of the church that when all areas of life are kingdom work or kingdom territory, I think there's a real danger that the church loses its, its place as, as something unique. Uh, that uh, I think there's a danger of uh, losing that New Testament witness that it really is the church that uh, is the place where we we find the ministry and the power of the kingdom of Christ even now. Think about Matthew 16, when, when Jesus said, I will build my church, the gates of hell will not stand against it. And he goes on to say, that the, and I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And he never said that about any other institution. He doesn't give the keys of the kingdom to the civil magistrate. He doesn't give it to judges. He doesn't give it to employers. Uh, it, it's it is the church that uh, is uh, that manifestation of the kingdom here and now, and uh, I think that there is some danger uh, in in, in neo-Calvinist ways of thinking to diminish the importance of uh, the church. And I would also I, I, uh, just to mention one other thing. Uh, I think that there is some danger that I've seen on many occasions uh, in neo-Calvinist circles of putting a kind of an undue burden on people to feel like they have to redeem their workplace or their vocation. And if they don't, there's some kind of failure. And I would respond, and this gets back to things we were talking about at the beginning of the interview, that, you know, we are called to pursue excellence in all our vocations. We're called to try to, to do good in wherever we find ourselves. Uh, but that, that doesn't mean necessarily that there's some 
distinctively Christian way of doing math pedagogy or of changing a diaper. And uh, I think a two kingdoms perspective in distinction from a neo-Calvinist perspective can free Christians of some of that anxiety of uh, feeling like they need to uh, redeem their work or redeem their workplace that I think is really putting a false a false burden upon the consciences of Christians. I think that's really helpful because if you are, uh, you know, working outside the home, there's a lot of jobs where you really can't do that. Um, it would, I mean, you risk losing your job <laughs> if you try to redeem your job to make it a uh, Christian, you know, mine included. Um, but that's, there's lots of jobs in the public sphere that you, you can't, um, you can't be sharing the gospel at work. Like you, you can't do that. Um, so I, I think that's helpful to kind of relieve, um, relieve that, that pressure. Well, um, since we're starting to run out of time, I wanted to thank you. I, I think there's so much to talk about with this. We could talk for hours because really, and that's why I'm going to encourage my listeners to get Living in God's Two Kingdoms, your book, A Biblical Vision for Christianity and Culture. And then you also have Natural Law and the Two Kingdoms. And how are those books differently? I've only read Living in God's Two Kingdoms. Yes. Uh uh, Living in God's Two Kingdoms is a book meant for uh, for ordinary, intelligent Christians. And when I say intelligent, I mean those who like to read books and um, who are willing to think about theological topics and biblical uh, uh, study. And so uh, Living in God's Kingdom, uh, Living in God's Two Kingdoms is probably uh, a good way to start for uh, for most of your listeners. If uh, I would take it that most of your listeners are intelligent, ordinary Christians who are not full time employed in theological work, uh, living uh, uh, my my book, Natural Law and the Two Kingdoms, is written for more of a scholarly or academic uh, audience, and that's also a uh, a historical study. So that that is meant not to offer a biblical case for a position, but to survey how. Uh, reformed theologians and, in some cases, uh, legal or political thinkers have thought about these issues th uh, through history. Uh, so, living in God's two kingdoms is not historical. That that has a that has really a biblical focus. Trying to trying to argue what is a faithful uh, biblical way to think about these things. Yeah, I think it's a really good introduction. Um, to it. I told Ashley that she needs to read it too. So <laughs> encourage her in that. Well, thank you so, so much for taking the time. You know, we're just, we're just grateful that you would come on the show and, and answer our questions and help us to understand our, and our listeners to understand this a little bit better. Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you. And Ashley and I'll be right back. Looking for that perfect track for your next evangelism outreach? Look no further. At TrackedPlanet.com, we have solid, biblical tracks that are a breeze to hand out. They are beautifully designed and are the highest quality tracks available. With over 80 different designs in stock and literally hundreds more available by custom order, we're sure to have just the right one for you. You can get any of our items printed with your church or ministry information or have us design a brand new track just for you. 
we are committed to the solid biblical message of law to the proud and grace to the humble. Each tract is firm on the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the necessity of repentance and faith in salvation. Come check us out at tractplanet.com and make sure you use coupon code BTWN at checkout for 10% off your entire order. That's tractplanet.com, coupon code BTWN. So Ashley, I talked to Jean when we you had talked about her idea and she she offered the idea of calling the segment the yeah about that segment. <laughs> I thought that might not be a bad name. What do you think? Yeah, I like that. So this is our yeah about that segment. Yep. And I think that name actually fits really well what I wanted to what I saw yeah. online. If you don't know, uh, you know what? I'm going to find a, a good uh, Ludeman, uh, or I'm sorry, I'm saying Ludeman. It's totally Lumberg. <laughs> I don't know why I'm saying Ludeman. Uh, I'm going to find a good Lumberg uh, meme and put it on our Twitter. Okay. So that people That's know. Because I think some people might not be familiar. Honestly, I wouldn't recommend watching the movie. You know, but it, it, it is pretty funny just to see, like, the clips. So. I think most people have seen that meme, though. I mean, they, they put different mm -hmm. words to it, but it's, like, all over the place. Even if you don't yeah. know the movie, you've probably seen this little image of him standing there. He's – what I – whenever I think of Lumberg, I think of him when he's, like, yeah, it'd be great if – like, he always says, right. like, it'd be great. So, like, when, when all my friends were, like, we were all getting engaged and married – there was a funny one that would that said, uh, "Yeah, it'd be great if everyone could stop getting engaged." You know, <laughs> like single people, like, "Geez, all my friends are getting engaged." So that was one of my favorites. Well, this one, and you know, we're not trying to pick on anyone, so I'm not going to say where it came from. And it, and the things that we find, and please send us things, can be anywhere, you know, online. But I saw this, and I said, I think this would be good. And this is actually something that um, a gal from our group had um, posted in a private group chat. And it it's actually from the Statement of Faith from a Church. And it says, it is the Father's will for believers to become whole, healthy, and successful in all areas of life. But because of the fall, many may not receive the full benefits of God's will while on earth. That fact, though, should never prevent all believers from seeking the full benefits of Christ's provision in order to better serve others. So if you didn't figure this out, this comes from a Word of Faith church. Hmm. So I think it's very interesting how they're defining God's will. Yeah. We did a whole episode on it. So according to them, God's will is for believers to become whole. I'm not sure what whole means exactly, but whole, healthy, and successful. Okay. But but according to them, God's will isn't isn't coming about <laughs> like it's supposed to, where we would see that God's will does happen because he is God and he is sovereign. Yeah. I'm thinking of in scripture where it says well, I'm trying to think of in scripture where it says uh, God's will is for you to be successful. Uh, and, health, and healthy and, and whole. Healthy. No, yeah. I actually, what came to mind, whenever people talk about 
God's will. I always think of First Thessalonians 4, where it says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. And then it starts listing all these things you should be abstaining from. Um, and there's other parts in scripture where it talks about God's will for you. Uh, but not that you would be healthy and successful. That would be rather discouraging to someone who is not healthy and not successful. Right. Well, yeah. like me, I mean, just to be honest, I'm not healthy. And and I told the story. I cannot remember which episode, but I'm going to go ahead and tell it again because I think it fits into this. But I had got first when I got sick, somebody left an anonymous note in our folder at homeschool co-op. We just had these, there was like a file folder and each family had a folder and you would, you know, people would put stuff in your folders, usually stuff from teachers and stuff. So I had this, this envelope, it just said Colleen on it. And I thought, oh, I'll just read it when I get home. And I pull it out and it was about basically about how it was several verses taken out of context how it pretty much the message of it was if I had enough faith, then God would heal me. Mm. Even though in that moment, I, okay, even though I knew theologically that that was not correct, I, it, it was pretty upsetting to me. Yeah. And, but there, there's a good end to this story though, <laughs> because I went and said something on Facebook, like, uh, whoever sent me the anonymous note, you know, <laughs> and I get a phone call from the person who left me the note. Oh. And we had a really long talk and I mean, it was so good. And we were just on the same page at the end. So there, I'm glad that story has a really good ending, but there are people who believe this stuff. And I think maybe sometimes it's our default belief. You know, if God, if I was just obeying more, then maybe God would answer my prayers the way I want him to answer my prayers. Yeah, and the opposite is true. Like something happens, um, something unfortunate happens, and you kind of, even even people with right theology might wonder, did I do something? What, you know, is there is there some sin? And, and, it, and we know theologically that's not correct, but those thoughts, you know, come to your mind. And I noticed in that that statement, that you know, church statement, how sneaky that was in there. It doesn't sound erroneous. It sounds actually, you know, quite good. And it, you know, if you're not if you're not being very careful, right? If you're not discerning, you might miss that. right? Yeah. Well, and this is from a very large church, so a lot of people think it sounds just quite good, you yeah. know, and if they're not discerning, it, it makes sense. You know, God wants me to be whole, healthy, and successful. But mm -hmm. but then we have to, I mean, healthy, we we're, we, li we live in a fallen world on our episode on suffering, and that may have been when I talked about it. The, scripture gives so many reasons for suffering, and they're not bad reasons, you mm -hmm. know? They're not all bad reasons. It's not just for discipline. There's so many reasons that are good for us that he that suffering exists for for us. He uses suffering for our good, for his glory. Mm -hmm. Suffering is not, I mean, I can just say in my my own life, I am grateful for suffering. I mean, yeah. in, in its midst, I want to be done with it, but <laughs> but I can look back and see how God worked in suffering. 
Yeah. So I think I think like we talked about last week. I think the beads. Right. The the or was that two weeks ago? We talked about yeah. the beads, and I think that people say these things just like that. You know, where you're last week. I think it was we're kind of simple. You know, this week right. it's uh, it kind of separates us. Our kind, kind of separates it us. Kind of you. separates us from God. And this week it's God wants you to be whole and healthy and successful. I think people say these things with good intentions. Uh, for the most part, to draw people into their church or into their ministry, but you're you're luring people in with something that's just not true, and so it just right. we need to knock it off. <laughs> right. Stop. Yeah, actually, just made me think of something else I saw this week, just real quick. And there's a there's a very liberal woman pastor here in Denver named Nadia Boltz Weber. I mean, I, I don't like to use the word pastor or whatever. I mean, she's with the Elka Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. Very liberal. Okay, her her church accepts things as good, which are which God calls sin. Mm-hmm. And so anyways, so, so there was a discussion about her and somebody said she's a gospel reductionist. And another guy, a pastor came along and said, she's not a gospel reductionist. She doesn't have a gospel at all because you cannot have the gospel if you do not preach the law. Mm. And thinking about like the beads and that, you know, sin kind of separates us from God. It's very important to preach the law. And even in this, I mean, this is, this is their statement of faith. And um, I'm not looking at the whole thing, but this is a great emphasis of their statement of faith instead of, you are a wicked sinner and mm-hmm. your only hope is Christ. Yeah. His life, death, and resurrection. Yeah. So I and I think we've talked before about this where I think some people downplay the weight of sin. Just yeah. how horrible sin is. Yeah, and I'm gonna toot the confession horn because I mean, statement of faith are great. And I know a lot of churches have them, a lot of good churches have them, but I think when you adhere to a confession it's just really helpful for clarity because a lot of statements of faith that I read are 10 sentences, you know, and there's, there's just not enough there to really flesh out. Well, what do you, what do you really, you know, believe? Um, So. And if you haven't, if you haven't read, you know, any of the catechisms or confessions, you know, do that because it's, they're, they're so good. They're so helpful. I mean, you can even start with the Westminster Shorter Catechism or the Heidelberg Catechism, you know, absolutely love. If you think like the Westminster Confession seems overwhelming, you know, start with, with one of those, those catechisms and mm-hmm. just, it, it's, they're just so rich in there. Oh, I should mention too, that article I read about my son being an atheist, somebody responded to me. And I, it's like the first time I did not approve a comment on one of my posts, but it said the first, he was going to tell me things that were going to sting me, apparently. And the Mm -hmm. first one was about my teaching my children songs from another century. Um, so, so apparently that was a mistake of mine for, for teaching my kids the hymns and Psalms. Huh? Yeah. That is so bizarre. Yeah, and then another one was teaching them catechism. So another mistake I made. He, he's saying that you shouldn't have done 
you shouldn't no, have it was a problem kids. yeah he oh, he was criticizing my because i mentioned that article teaching my children the psalms and hymns and and he said something about you know teaching your children songs it, something about it doesn't something about the the cultural divide <laughs> i don't remember exactly what it was i put it on twitter actually so i can't remember what the third one was but i just and there, oh, there was something else in there that was just very Arminian in the gospel. That's, that was actually my reason for not approving it because I just was uncomfortable with it, with that part of it. But it's just, in, it's interesting. And I think some of our listeners probably, I mean, Catechism and Confession, maybe our show is the first time they heard of that. And I, I get it. In fact, Ashley and I both get it. First mm -hmm. time, you know, I was kind of a new Calvinist, not quite reformed. I heard these Protestants do what? Catechism, <laughs> confession, that's Catholic, isn't it? So I do understand if you're not familiar with it, it seems a little bit bizarre. If the only time you've heard of it is when your, um, your little Catholic friends went to catechism class, because that's the only <laughs> time I heard of it. Yeah. Well, typical Presbyterians, Colleen, we started talking about bad theology and we got to uh, the confessions. <laughs> I know I was actually thinking, Look at us, I was thinking I should have my cowbell here. I actually have the, the cowbell from Brent's yeah. great grandparents farm. Every time we talk like Scott Clark, when he mentions a book, every time we mention the confessions, I, yeah. I can ring the cowbell, yeah. but it'd be like half the episode every time. So it's just yeah. work. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do want to remind everybody that we are next week, Lord willing, going to be doing our last for now in this complementarianism series. And I'm still waiting for some, some voicemails. So please call and leave us some voicemails. Our phone number is 951-407-0234. You can find that number on our website, BibleThumpingWingNet.com. Click on Theology Gals, go to this episode, and the phone number is going to be right there. Along with, you can you don't have to leave a voicemail, but we are, we are doing a contest. So between the women who leave voicemails, and it's going to end up going to to Abby, I think, if no one else calls in. So, but you can also email us at theologygals at gmail.com. You can connect with us on Twitter, theology gal at, at theology gals. You can find us on Facebook. You can find our Facebook group, theology gals. It's all theology gals on everywhere. Instagram, it's all theology gals. <laughs> so, but we're going to be we're going to be doing kind of a wrap up of our complementarianism series, talking about just kind of reviewing some of the things that we have talked about in regards to complementarianism. Is it really a good, the best word to describe what we are? The Genesis 316 controversy that we talked with Wendy about. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about women in the church, like we talked with Amy about, and then we're going to answer your questions best we can. We yeah. will try to answer your questions. And if you have any criticisms, you can send those in too. We don't mind responding, you know, to those also. Well, I appreciate so much all of you that are joining us tonight and we will see you next week. 